0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this
1: is Earth Eats. We're not a big restaurant, so like if we, you know, we try to spend at least half of our money a year within a 50 mile radius, that may only be 60 or $75,000. But if 10 restaurants do that, if 20, that's over a million dollars a year, that just goes right back into the local economy, local people, and also regenerative farming is far better for the environment which is what most of these local farmers practice.
0: This week on the show, we talk with Nick Dietrich of Small Favors in Bloomington about his approach to cooking and to running a restaurant after what some might call a reckoning in the hospitality industry. Dietrich also shares a recipe featuring French pastry and fancy cheese from Kentucky. That's all just ahead. Stay with us. The building on the corner of 6th Street and Morton on Bloomington's near west side is small and unassuming, other than the fact that it's painted a bold shade of pink with black and white checkered trim. That's a carryover from the previous establishment, La Viande Rose. It was a sweet spot serving quiche and other tasty French-style dishes. The new inhabitants, Small Favors, describe themselves as a neighborhood gathering place, serving wine, food, and wine-based cocktails. They go on to say on their website, quote, We want to serve the community through nourishing our guests, sourcing locally, investing in our farm partners, paying our staff a livable wage, and serving wine from people who think similarly. I was intrigued by this statement and wanted to hear more. So I arranged to meet with the chef and co-owner of Small Favors, Nick Dietrich, Come back here. Yeah, come on I down. headed over there on a Monday morning yeah, with producer down. Toby For Foster. Nick layer. greeted us in the dining room and led us down a narrow set of steps behind the bar into the kitchen to walk us through a recipe.
1: French pastry stuffed with chicken liver parfaits, pâtisserie, or gougeres. All right, shall so I just dive in then? Yes. My name's Nick Dietrich. We're at Small Favors in Bloomington, Indiana, 6th and Madison. <laughs> Forgot the address. <laughs> We're gonna start by making the gougeres this is a puff pastry. It can be made savory or sweet. So this is going to be a savory one with some Gruyere from Kentucky and then a little bit of Parmesan Romano on top. It's a recipe that dates back to the 1500s. Here I've got some butter, a little bit of cayenne, and some salt. And we're just going to bring this to a boil. And on deck we've got some Gruyere from Kenny's in Kentucky, a, a dairy there. This is flour from a bread flour, high protein flour from Janie's Mill. Four eggs, and those are from Rhodes Farms. And then everything else that we need is in there. This is a really delicious snack. It's sort of like a, a historical cheese doodle. <laughs> but the way that they cook, they're very high hydration dough. So in the oven, we'll cook them in two stages at two different heats. So the steam will actually cause the dough to rise quite a bit which is why we don't, it doesn't take very long to prepare the dough. You know, you don't have to let the dough ferment or anything like that. It just puffs up and it's really airy inside. And with all the cheese that's in it, there's all these beautiful threads and striations of melted cheese and all these cavities that are amazing for just stuffing things. So we'll use chicken liver parfait today, but it's great for like leek mousse. You can make them sweet, like a cream puff or a profiterole starts with a sweet version of a gougere. But yeah, they're they're, they're a lot of fun and they're great Like we make them here because they're actually, they sit out really, really well. So we make them every day, but then we just leave them out in the kitchen, stuff them to order, and send them out. So our water's starting to boil, so I'm just gonna stir it and incorporate this butter. And we wanna get it into a pretty agitated state. And then we'll take it from the heat.
0: Oh, it's really foamed up.
1: Yeah, it'll foam a lot. And then we'll just stir it around, get that little bit of butter down. And then we'll add all the flour at once. And then we're just going to stir continuously um, for about a minute or two. Basically, uh, you want to incorporate the dough, but you want, it, you want it to be cohesive. But you also want it to be sticky and pull away. You see, if you look, there's some residue on the sides there. After about a minute, that'll all dissipate. It'll be one nice, doughy, cohesive mass. But you see, we've been at this for a minute and a half, and we're already this far along. <laughs> But yeah, I'll keep stirring, looking for the flakes of granules. You can see now it almost looks like mashed potatoes. So it's really getting there.
0: Yeah, that's really quick how it's changing.
1: And part of that too, this doesn't really work with all purpose flour. You really need a high protein flour, bread flour, caputo flour. This is Janie's Mill bread flour. It works really great for this. Okay, so now you can see that's kind of pulling away really cleanly. So what we'll do is we'll put it in our KitchenAid here. And you want to use a wooden spoon for this. Don't use metal on metal, just because you don't want to flake anything, especially if you're using a nonstick pan. Okay, we got that in the KitchenAid. And so we'll just turn this on. Your KitchenAid will probably have between either five or 10 settings. You want to put it to one or two. And we'll take some eggs here and we're just gonna add them one at a time and let each one incorporate. So just crack it into a bowl in case you get some shells in there. And then you'll just wanna watch to see that get incorporated. You'll have to stop probably once to push everything down, unless you're really lucky, but I'm not often lucky. So I'm gonna stop it now. And sometimes, you know, you just want to stop it and make sure all of the dough is moving around. All of it's... hanging out with the uh, eggs as they drop in. So it looks almost like, at this stage, it looks almost like a custard. It'll get really thick, gooey, which is perfect because we're going to put it into a piping bag and pipe it out. So we want it to be... custardy. And our last egg will go in. And we'll let that incorporate and then we're gonna add all of our cheese and let that fold in and then we'll just scrape it all into a pastry bag and put it on a sill pad. I've got the oven at uh, 425 degrees right now. We'll do about 15 minutes at 425 and then we'll do 10 minutes where we drop it down to 350. We wanna cook it really hot at first so that all that steam release, push everything up and also brown everything really well. And then that extra 350, 10 minutes, will just make sure everything sets up really beautifully. So it's really nice looking dough now. So I'll take all my cheese and just dump it in. But yeah, now it's sort of like in between a custard and like a really good pizza dough. So like super wet and sticky but still has a little bit of uh, glossiness to it. All right, so now I'll go ahead and lower this down slowly while the paddle's running, just cause I'm gonna use it, movement to get the, some of the dough off of
0: there. How do you know it's, it's ready?
1: If you look at it, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's got a tackiness to it. It's glossy, it's well incorporated. I don't really see any cheese shreds anymore. I like to shred the cheese on the uh, biggest grater side that I have too just because that way I know for a fact is incorporated, because it'll start very lumpy and then turn very smooth. Now I'm just gonna scrape my paddle. All right, so now I've got a pastry bag with a star tip, and what I'm gonna do is just grab a little bowl and kind of fold the tip of the pastry bag over, just so that it doesn't spill out as I'm trying to pipe it in here. And so with the bowl scraper, I'm just gonna start to move the dough around in the bowl some just to get it into one more uh, scoopable mass. And then holding open the pastry bag, I'm gonna go ahead and just slightly <coughs> fold the bowl scraper and just start dumping all of this in here. They also sell cones, which are really handy. If I was a smarter man, I'd have a cone <laughs> that hold the pastry bag open while you do this.
0: It's like storage space is at a premium here though.
1: <laughs> so. Yeah, it is, but it's, a. Uh, it's a good size kitchen. You know, we're only a forty-seat restaurant, so it's like it's actually bigger than what we need for for that. But you know, a small kitchen means less inventory, less less folks running around, running into each other, less accidents, tighter knit group, and also I don't have to go as far. You know, like I what four steps from the oven right now. <laughs> all right, so we've got all of that in there, and now what I'm going to do is. I've got a sheet pan with a Silpat on it. And what is a Silpat? Oh, a Silpat is uh, basically a silicon mat with a mesh inside of it. It's used for a lot of pastry baking. Um, It's great for baking in general, just keeping your pans clean and everything like that. But because of the mesh too, it ensures that uh, instead of with parchment paper or something else that might insulate still, uh, it's still very conductive. So before you pick up your pastry bag, just kind of make sure your tip is set. You just want to push it so that it's flush, kind of like you're wearing a turtleneck. And then we'll pop that up. And then I like to start at the bottom of the pan and just sort of squeeze everything into place. And if your first couple are not pretty, that's fine. They're snacks for right when they come out of the oven because what you want to do is make sure you get it set up really well so that you can just kind of twist the bag a little bit to pipe it out slowly and you want to do it in a spiral with a peak. And you can use a straight pastry chip if you want. I like to have a little bit of uh, pizzazz with the uh, striations there. Yeah, we'll do five of these per order with sort of like our more small plate style menu. So now that we've got all of these set up I'm gonna take a microplane and some Parmesan Romano And just so there's cheese on top too, I'm just gonna grate. You know, a healthy amount. I mean, it's basically about uh, three to four grams per. And then we'll throw these in the oven. And we'll uh, set the timer for 15 minutes. And then after 15 minutes, we'll do another 10 at 350. Next up, we're going to make a chicken liver parfait or chicken liver mousse. You know, we when we cook with meat, we try to use local as much as possible. We also try to use cuts that aren't often used, chicken liver, beef tongue, things like that. One, because a lot of times they get trashed, two, they're actually like full of more minerals and vitamins and stuff like that than a lot of the muscle meat, and they're also delicious. So I've got some chicken livers here that have been rinsed and patted dry. These are from the Flying Pig Farm. They're out in Spencer. They're one of the first folks that we purchased from, like bought a whole pig from them when we opened and a bunch of, buy a lot of our chickens from them. So I've got grapeseed oil, something with a high smoke point, also it's more neutral. You don't want to use olive oil for something like this because you don't impart too much flavor. The chicken livers have just been simply seasoned with a little bit of salt and pepper. And I've got six ounces here, which is like six livers. <laughs> Not very big, you know. I'll go ahead and throw those down here. Spread them out evenly. And these will only take about one, two minutes a side. As soon as I flip them over, I'm going to use some shallots, fresh thyme, and some dried marjoram. So I'm gonna go ahead and flip them over. When you cook these, you want them to be cooked all the way through, browned on the outside, and slightly pink in the middle still. So we'll go ahead and turn these over. And chicken livers, I think, my favorite, one of my favorite ways to eat them that's not a pate or a mousse or a parfait because they're amazing if you just deep fry them and serve them with a wedge of lemon and pepper jelly. All right, so now we'll add our shallots, thyme, marjoram, and we'll let that other side cook, kind of steaming all of the herbs and everything on top, and then we'll uh, whip it around to roll it in, about another minute and a half on this side.
0: Them on top there. We well, I mean, still want
1: a sharp flavor from them. You know, you don't want, like, uh, especially with shouts because they're a milder allium, you know, you don't want to overcook them because then what's the point? Okay. <laughs> so those are calming down a little bit. And what we'll do, we'll take one out and just slice it in half to see where we're at. We're not quite there yet. So we will let that go for another 45 seconds to a minute. Now that we're getting close, I'm gonna go ahead and mix those onions in a little bit more. And just like when you're cooking a steak too, you can also tap on them to check the firmness as you're cooking. They'll tighten up. If you overcook chicken liver, it'll get like brittly and almost gristly and just not very pleasant. All right, so we'll check this one. So that's what you're looking for, just slightly ever so pink still. And we'll go ahead and pull that from the heat and I'm going to go grab the blender pitcher. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and plop these chicken livers into the blender pitcher and let them just hang out there for a sec. And don't worry about getting all of the bits out because what I'm going to do now is take the pan, put it back on my burner, and I'm using a little bit of Madeira, Canary Islands wine that's completely oxidized, so it's great for cooking because it's already completely cooked. Cognac is also great for this recipe too, but we don't have a liquor license, so we use a lot of Madeira or Pinot de Chirot as well. So we'll get that on. Look for a little bit of sizzle happening. Add the Madeira, deglaze the pan, get all that fond off of there. I'll take my, uh, your, you'll want to take your rubber spoon or silicon spatula and just kind of move everything around to get all that fond up, because that's where a lot of the tastiness is, is going to reside and we'll add that there. And again, don't worry about all the bits because we're going to use the pan again. We're going to take a cup of heavy cream, turn on our pan on lower heat. So I'm using an induction. I'm setting it to 130 just because we want the cream to warm. We don't want it to scald. We don't want it to start to turn into a custard. <laughs> so we'll just put that in there. It won't take long to heat your cream. You could even just use the hot pan still. I'm just going to pull that off, test it. It's warmer than my hand, so I know it's at a good temp. We'll go ahead and add all this cream. Now we'll take this and put it on our Vita Prep. Uh, any variable speed blender is what you want to use for this. And then I've got 185 grams of butter that's already cubed. This is a mousse, so it's like an emulsification. So I'm going to start this run it on a low medium speed and just slowly add the butter. So on one, I'll just let it get going for a second. When you're looking into the blender, I've got the cover on and the little plug removed. Keep back because it'll spurt as that butter starts to incorporate. But you'll just want to check it, same with the, like when you're using making the Gougere batter, check it periodically, see that it's sort of got a smooth movement happening. You know, if it's sloshing about a a bit, it's probably not ready for another chunk of butter. And also these, your butter, you can probably pull out. This is, I cut this about a half hour ago and it was a little bit too moist. I threw it in the fridge, but probably a little bit too long. So like something that like gives a little bit when you squeeze it is the butter texture you're looking for. And last piece of butter going in. So what'd that take, like two minutes? Not bad. And so now with the chicken liver parfait, it is well incorporated. So we're just going to pour it in here. And you want to kind of pour it slowly, and you don't want to tamp it down either because you don't want to release too much of that air that's been whipped in there through that emulsification because that's going to give it a really lovely texture. This you want to have set in your fridge for about five hours.
0: If you're just joining us, that's Nick Dietrich of Small Favors walking us through the steps for making a chicken liver parfait. Once the gougeres come out of the oven and rest a bit, he'll fill the cheesy pastries with this smooth and savory mixture. In the meantime, we'll sit down with Nick in the dining room to talk about his work. That's coming up after a short break here on Earth Eats. Stay with us. Kate Young here, this is Earth Eats. We're back with Chef Nick Dietrich at Small Favors to hear about the restaurant and a bit about Nick's background.
1: Small Favors opened January of this year and it's a, we're a small restaurant, uh, 40 seats, with extensive natural wine selection and then a seasonal menu that changes once a month. I'm from around here uh, and I spent a long time away and when I moved back, first thing that I noticed was that it was hard to find a decent bottle of wine. Like I went to a wine shop in town and they didn't have a Chablis, which was like something that I thought was pretty standard. And so I started thinking about Doing something in town to help make it easier to get a bottle of wine. A lot of people I talk to use like subscription services or uh, ordered bottles to be delivered to Bloomington and stuff like that. And like, well, that seems doesn't seem very uh, <laughs> like a very good thing uh, with all the cardboard waste, ice packs, everything that it takes to ship a bottle, getting shipped to the facility that boxes it, unboxes it, reboxes it, sends it. So I started thinking about opening up a, a wine shop, and then that sort of just based on the rules and regulations and laws surrounding wine and spirits in Indiana, it made more sense to make it a restaurant. And, and I, this is, I've had. Uh, five restaurants before this one, so I figured, you know, I knew those ropes pretty well. So we tried to make something that puts a lot of emphasis on the agricultural importance of food as well as wine. So, you know, when I say natural wine, what I really mean is like low-intervention wine or wines that are made typically by the same people that grow the grapes A lot of them use sustainable practices or biodynamic practices, organic practices, and a lot of them don't use lab-grown yeasts. They use the yeasts that grow on the grapes themselves. They also will not add any sort of like food colorings, dyes or anything like that, low amounts of filtration, Some, some will add sulfur, which, you know, sulfides, which stabilize the wine, but some don't. And those are surprising wines because one bottle may be completely different from the one you have a week uh, later. And so, and then on the food side of things, you know, we strive to do the same. We go very seasonally. So every four weeks, four or five weeks, we change our menu. We buy from local farmers where it makes sense. We also make some decisions that are not local, but we believe are of great ecological importance. So we do a pretty large oyster program for a landlocked place like Bloomington, Indiana. We usually have three to four varieties of oysters every day, mainly because they're very beneficial to the environment. They clean up waterways. They are low-impact farming, aquaculture. They're used a lot in shore restoration projects, and so we think it's a good thing to consume them. We work with a distributor called What Chefs Want and Bluefin Seafood, and so they'll typically eat, uh, send me a text a couple times a week and let me know what, they've, what they have, and so we'll make selection basically based on freshness for the most part and a lot of what we get comes from the north Atlantic coast. So we will get some from the Pacific but since it's a greater distance we we tend not to. I think probably 60 percent of the oysters we serve come from Prince Edward Island though. Typically they'll get harvested and cleaned and everything like that and from that point to our door, it'll usually be seven to 10 days.
0: Could you talk more about your interest or your commitment to local sourcing, whether that's um, on the meat side or on the vegetables?
1: Sure, yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, I think one of the most important things that a restaurant can be is a, is a standard bearer and member of a community. And I think trying to get back as much as possible to the community is an important part of uh, that ethos. And and also it makes business sense too, because like a lot of farmers that I buy from are some of our most vocal advocates as well. But you know, part of it is keeping money locally and making sure that people can have good jobs like regenerative farming that are not far away. The environmental impact I think is pretty evident on a lot of f- commercial and factory farming. And that translates also into the product, you know, like, A happy pig is going to be better meat, you know, one that gets a root around out in the field for its life. And instead of living in a stall for its entire life, that's going to translate into better food. And there's also the welfare of the animal uh, as part of that decision-making process there. But, yeah, I mean, the biggest part is just sort of like the local economic impact. We're not a big restaurant, so, like, if we, you know, we try to spend at least half of our money a year within a 50-mile radius... That may only be sixty or seventy-five thousand dollars, but if ten restaurants do that, if twenty, that's over a million dollars a year. That just goes right back into the local economy, local people, and also regenerative farming is far better for the environment, which is what most of these local farmers practice. You know, they're not doing heavy tilling, they're not depleting the soil, they're doing cover crops, and that is going to be better in the long run too. Especially if you take like a futurist lens and like a moral lens at like the next generation, the next five generations. If we deplete all the nutrients in the soil, then everyone's going to be in corn in 25, 30 years. So I guess it boils down to local impact and environmental impact.
0: And have you found, so since you started the restaurant really with this in mind, you really just set everything up for that kind of purchasing. So is it harder to coordinate when you're working with smaller farmers and you're not just like purchasing everything yeah there's a convenience
1: that you lose but I mean it it I think it ends up paying for itself in the wash I've I've run a lot of kitchens where I would call in at the end of every night and have no idea where any of the food was coming from but that would be there the next day and that was great and easy but now I think uh, I would overorder all the time, and I wouldn't really care as much if something spoiled or went off. But now that I, you know, the person who's dropping off the eggs or the dairy or whatever that I'm buying, now that I see them every week and everything like that, I typically run things tighter. We do better. We save money on on waste because of that, and I get to interact with the people that grow it, and I also get to talk to them a lot. Like, you know, for instance. The woman that raises a lot of our goats and rabbits will talk to me months in advance and I'll be able to get things that make friends in bigger cities jealous, like mutton, for instance. Everyone's like, no one's willing to raise a lamb longer than a couple years for us. And we have one farmer who's like, yeah, we'll we'll make sure that we have mutton for you. And so having those relationships offers a lot more interesting variety too. And also getting it in from a processor, I can butcher the meat differently. I don't have to get it all cryovac'd in five ounce portion sizes. You know, I have a little bit more control over that can serve stuff that you won't find elsewhere.
0: So it contributes to the culinary decisions that you're making because you, and that you can make because.
1: Well, and it's food too, you know, it's a natural thing. And so it should be that way. Your decision shouldn't be made by when the trucks arrive. It should be made by if it was a if there was a late frost, you know, in the spring, you know, and things like that, um, you know, not, we couldn't get chilies from New Mexico, so we got them from Peru, <laughs> you know, like that sort of, those constraints are good for the restaurant in our decision-making and keeping us nimble and keeping our offerings interesting. And I think that helps to keep everyone well invested in the program, you know, our employees as well as our guests.
0: I liked what you said, too, about when you've developed a relationship with the farmer and you know that it's, you know, you know that they've put their heart and energy into that product. It's more precious to you, not just because of the cost of it or something, but because because of that relationship and you don't want to waste it and you want to use it well. I mean, I just know that I feel that way with food that comes out of my own garden or that someone I know grew, I'm just like, oh, I want to make sure I use that. That can't rot in the bottom of the crisper, you know?
1: Well, and it's, I mean, when you do this for a living too, you know, cooking, it is a craftsman's or an artisan's job. You know, it's something that it takes time. It takes repetition. It takes suffering and passion to get good at it. And part of Getting good at it too is understanding the materials that you're working with, how to manipulate them, and how to treat them. Seem like a woodworker would much rather work with—I'm not a woodworker, so this analogy is probably going to be bad—but would much rather work with cherry than plywood. And uh, and so that translates as well to better food, better quality and and yeah, just better relationships with everyone.
0: Could you talk about your history, how you got into cooking? You've mentioned you had some other restaurants.
1: Well, I mean, I started cooking in Danville, Indiana in 1998, and I just worked at a local pub, basically. It wasn't a pub, because they didn't have a liquor license, but it was like pub food. The best-selling item was cowboy potatoes, which were waffle fries with mozzarella and bacon bits.
0: From there, he worked in several kitchens and then ended up in the bar at Jazz at the Station in Bloomington. He moved to New Orleans with a group of friends and wound up in some craft cocktail bars. One of his restaurants, Cane and Table, was nominated for Best Beverage Program in 2015, and he became a partner in a group that won a James Beard Award in 2018. Dietrich left the group and opened a bar on the south side of London before returning to New Orleans where he opened two other places, Monolito and Jewel of the South in the French Quarter. When the pandemic hit and there wasn't much happening in the restaurant world, Dietrich decided to return to Indiana to be closer to his parents since his sister and her family were moving away.
1: So I moved back and stayed with my dad for a bit. Uh, We actually planted a small apple orchard out there in Brown County and then bought a house on Kirkwood that we renovated and that was our pandemic. And so near the end of that we uh, decided, well I talked about like we need a good place to get a bottle of wine in town. So that's how we wound up deciding to jump back into the restaurant game here.
0: Can you talk a little bit more in detail about your menu and about how, I know you have like special days of the week.
1: You know, like I mentioned before, I think that an important facet of a restaurant is to be a member of the community. And so we try to keep things lively in that regard with special events and things like that. So some of them are very hard to put on. Like one, our most popular series so far was an event series called No Menu Tuesdays, which we ran for June and July. And basically every week there was a theme. It might be Spanish Basque or Midwestern culinary classics, things like that. And so our guests would not get the menu until after the meal. So every dish was a surprise. And so they had to commit to to that and put a lot of faith and trust in us. But, uh, you know, it was a very well-received event, very fun. Um, we'll do another run of that series in January, and we're planning some special guests to come in to town to either cook or pour wine, and some things like that with us. I keep talking about how it was hard to get a bottle of wine, so we're going to start a retail shop pop-up. And we on Monday evenings, we'll sell bottles of wine at retail markups, not traditional rec- restaurant market markups. So there'll be like $18 and up on the bottles. But part of that, we're also going to do a Sicilian pizza pop-up. So we'll do a Fincione pizza, like a high hydration, very like almost like focaccia dough with tomato sauce and breadcrumbs, basil. And uh, that'll be like the signature pie. And then we'll have some other seasonal ones that will also give us an opportunity because. Sometimes I'll get, like, one of our local farmers, Ellie Spear, has cardoons, and I don't think she has a ton, so it wouldn't be enough to run for four or five weeks on a regular menu, but we can do a pizza with cardoon and and have some of those things that we get, like, really short bursts of and have a have a good outlet for them.
0: Can you explain what a cardoon is?
1: A uh, cardoon is similar to, like, a, a globe artichoke. It's in the thistle family, but you don't actually eat the globe. You eat the stem. So it's sort of like a floral and woody celery, almost it's really common in a lot of bisques and soups especially in the mediterranean uh, but yeah and then as far as our regular menu goes you know we we were kind of just changing it every week and just sort of as things came and went so we started just for logistics here, you know, we started just doing a menu change every four to five weeks. And so, you know, that's a good stretch of time for seasonality. It's also a good stretch of time for, you know, like for this menu, we're running a goat dish. So I got two goats and, you know, I know from experience that that the meat from those goats will be four or five weeks on the menu. So that means, you know, like we're launching a new menu October 4th, but I'm already planning the next menu, which will launch the second week of November. So we can incorporate or plan for waste and plan for future menus. Like for instance, last menu, we did a lot of corn dishes because it's Indiana and it's August and you can get tons of or September and you can get tons of corn. So we took all of the corn husks to start making corn husk vinegars and things like that. So that way, you know, we're, we're working one menu the month in advance, but then we're also planning out the three after that just to make sure that we don't, throw a ton, a ton of stuff away.
0: Wow, I don't think I've ever heard of corn husk vinegar. That's interesting.
1: <laughs> Anything can be a vinegar. And corn, it's really delicious too because there's a lot of nuanced flavors in there that take a lot of time to develop. And so like, if you basically mash it all and throw in a mother and let it rest for about three or four months and you'll end up with amazing product.
0: So are you making your own stocks and things like that? Oh yeah
1: yeah I mean we'll buy stock in a pinch. I mean Blooming Foods is across the street which is a godsend sometimes like when I need a quart of beef stock or something like that but no I've like the the goat for instance you know I broke that down yesterday and all the bones are back there right now because we'll make a stock and then turn that into a demi-gloss. But yeah we we try to throw as little away as possible. We do I mean Earth Keepers though comes twice a week to pick up all of our compost but most of that's cooked and we're extracting all the deliciousness that we can out of it before it goes there.
0: Can you say what some of your uh, your favorite something you love making?
1: We always have an ice cream. I always love making the ice creams and it's usually a vegan ice cream too so we'll use like uh, coconut milk and arrowroot and churn it and usually it's something that's pretty fun that we only get for a short period because it's a lot easier to change the desserts over frequently and so like we just had a we had a sweet corn ice cream recently and we're going to have a fig leaf ice cream next week because fig leaves are amazing we're getting those from the same woman who has the cardoons they they have this like crazy like they definitely have like a fig note to them, but they also have like a weird coconut tropical note to them. If you dry them, they make excellent tea, especially like iced tea, but if you just simmer them in the coconut milk and then churn it to ice cream, it's delicious ice cream. We also use it in a cocktail on the menu and a syrup with some Corsican vermouth. But yeah, and, and so it's, it's always fun because that's like usually the thing that's changing a lot is on the dessert list. And then we, you know, we'll all often do a burrata set. So like a fresh mozzarella stuffed with cream. Like the one from the last menu, we had a ton of these beautiful peppers from Seven Ridges Farm. So we did a quick pickle on them and made a sweet corn quick pickle pepper salad, served it with the ball of burrata and then some fresh baked focaccia with uh, sage leaves pushed into it.
0: Do you have menus or menu items that are for vegetarians or vegans?
1: Uh, Always, yeah. So we typically will have about two to three items that are vegan, about three to four that are vegetarian. The remainder will typically be seafood meat. We always have like a, uh, for instance, a a dip. So uh, like a chip and dip, and we always make that vegan. So there's always like a good vegan appetizer option. So that currently is a uh, Sea Island red pea dip. Sea Island red peas are a field pea that's grown by Anson Mills down in the Carolinas. It was very common... Pea for uh, the Gulagichi peoples there. So, what we do is we soak those and then whip them with confit garlic and black garlic, and then a little bit of the confit garlic oil and smoked cashews. And we serve that. We slice potatoes fry them to order. And then as soon as they come out of the fryer, we toss them with fresh rosemary. So it kind of steams a little bit of those aromatics into the chips as well. And then we put the dip down and cover it in a bunch of like a savory miscellany is what I like to call it, which is like lemon zest, orange zest, capers, pickled shallots. And so it's a really tasty dip.
0: Wow, that sounds really good. (laughs) So it sounds like you said that, you know, you you try to Source a certain percentage of your menu from a you know 50 mile radius, but it sounds like even when you're not purchasing things that are that local, you are prioritizing these smaller farms. You talked about Janie's Mill, and and then this this farm in the Carolinas.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, well, Anson Mills, I think is they're responsible for a lot of incredible grains and produce that would have been lost to time without. The work, uh, their work, in reaching out to people who had heritage seeds that had, you know, seed banks that have been passed down by family members and almost lost. You know, so that's something that we want to support. We will do some masa dishes every now and again, and we'll work with Masienda, which is an importer out of Oaxaca. They use heritage-grown maize for everything there, and those are typically indigenous peoples that are growing the the corn. And you know, it's it's made for masa, you know, so it's gonna make the best tortilla because of that, or tai or or whatever you may wanna make. You know, typically it's people that have, like, a very close agricultural connection that'll make the best food. My favorite olive oil that we're using right now is actually from California, and it's from Seca Hills. It's from an indigenous tribe in Northern California that, or they're in Central California, I think, but they press olives, and they make a bunch of preserves and things like that, but it's like a really grassy, delicious olive oil that's just perfect as a finish on a lot of dishes.
0: So it sounds like a lot of the ingredients that you're sourcing, they have a story.
1: Uh, so I spent a lot of my hospitality career as a bartender and, you know, a lot of that storytelling and a lot of that is how, like, if there was an eau de v or a cognac or something like that, that I was excited about behind the bar, you know, it, there was, it was usually because of the story behind it. And, you know, having the ability to tell a story with something that you, that implicitly has such a personal connection like nourishment you know really helps to to tie you to it and and it really makes it more nourishing because of that it's not just petrol you know or gasoline in a car you know it's like what makes the car move and what the story behind again I'm not a mechanic so I keep making these <laughs> analogies that are terrible but but the story of how it came to be in, in on the plate in front of you and how all of the components came there can make it more tantalizing and more delicious. and it also when you hear the story of like one or two items in a dish, you know you focus more on not just eating the whole dish, but you think about all the components. you think about how they they arrived there, and then you really get to enjoy the the dish that way.
0: and how does it how does it feel for you? preparing those and cooking with that?
1: Well, I mean, like I said before, you know, it is it is a artisanal job, you know, and so making sure that you have the right equipment and the right ingredients to put a dish together, you know, it, it forces you to be more focused. It forces you to have, to, to care more about what you're doing. And so you derive a great deal more enjoyment and satisfaction out of making something when you take all of these beautiful things that other people have put so much energy and time into making, and then you take them and make something else as beautiful, it's really special.
0: It sounds like you, it sounds like enjoyment and joy is a is a part of your, your practice here.
1: So. Oh, it's, well, it's hospitality, you know, like joie de vivre is, is, it should be a, you know, part of any restaurant's mission statement. And, you know, making people happy and taking care of people is what this industry is all about and top to bottom, you know, so... If you're respecting and taking care of the people that grow and produce your food, as well as the people that make it, as well as the guests that enjoy it, then it can be a truly fulfilling career and place to be.
0: My guest today on Earth Eats is Nick Dietrich, and we're talking about his restaurant, Small Favors, which opened on the near west side of downtown in Bloomington in January of 2022. After a short break, we'll return to our conversation and hear about what it was like to start a restaurant as a global pandemic was hopefully winding down, and we'll talk about some of his ideas for the future. Oh, and we'll taste those gougeres that just came out of the oven. Stay with us. for listening to Earth Eats, I'm Kate Young. Let's return to my conversation with Nick Dietrich, owner and chef of Small Favors in Bloomington. Nick opened his restaurant in January of 2022. I was curious about the timing and how the pandemic has influenced his approach to running a restaurant.
1: What happened in March of 2020 just laid bare a lot of things that had been stewing for a long time with things that were wrong with the industry. And, you know, it was a reckoning for a lot of people you know and for for me it's just like i just don't know what else i would do you know so i think you know being in bloomington and being able to Have a much tighter knit community that relies on people that live here rather than tourism and things like that made it important to make something that served that community, you know, as well as deal with some of the issues that have been prevalent in the industry uh, for a long time. You know, like we're coming through the hangover of the celebrity chef movement, and there's a whole generation of People who went to culinary school thinking they could get like a glamorous gig and be in food and wine and everything like that. When in fact, it's a working class gig, you know, like this is a craftsman job. It's like being a carpenter. And so there's now all of a sudden a huge, what people are referring to as the labor shortage. It's just people are moving on and doing other things because there's not the glamour and everything there. I mean, like. I was reading a piece on Nancy Hiller who recently passed and she was talking about she's a woodworker and she was talking about the root of the word passion being passio or suffering you know like there is a degree of suffering involved in anything that you are passionate about and and especially when you're creating something and so I guess in a long roundabout way I you know I think that the restaurant industry is still a vibrant place to be but I think that you know, I try to make sure that people know what they're committing to when they come to work here. And, you know, for me, it's just working with food and wine and spirits and everything like that. You know, it's such a, an interesting and wonderful place to be. I can't imagine doing anything else, which is why, you know, I thought I was getting out of the industry, but it only took about a year for me to get pulled back in.
0: And what about the people who, who work with you and, yeah, your staff?
1: Yeah, well, we're not we're not very big, so we have a pretty small group of people. I think, you know, we have about a dozen all told that work here. Very few of them had much if any experience in the restaurant industry before. Some here or there, but you know, I just tried to find people that were very interested and engaged and excited about what we were trying to do. And it was it was hard, you know, when we were hiring cuz how do you sell someone on something that doesn't exist, you know, as feel like a snake oil salesman? <laughs> but, you know, I was able to get enough to get uh, off the ground and uh, you know we had a very low rate of turnover since we opened which is rare in this industry but you know we it is like I said it, it keep saying it's a craftsman's job so we pay a uh, high wage higher than the standard in Bloomington and Education is very important for us. You know, we've sent some of our staff out of town for some events and uh, to learn a little bit more. And, you know, we're going to start sending some of our culinary team out to do stages in other cities, basically to work for a week in someone else's kitchen to learn a little bit more. And, you know, basically give them the opportunity to further their education, further their career and hone their craft.
0: The building where Small Favors resides is a small corner spot across from Blooming Foods and Hopscotch Coffee's express location. It's where La Vion Rose used to be, and the building is still painted pink on the outside, though they have fully transformed the interior. The kitchen is down a few steps from the dining and bar area, and it's long and narrow, like the restaurant. I asked Dietrich how the space is working out for him.
1: I like it a lot. I mean, I don't like big restaurants. I've had big restaurants in the past and once, you know, once you exceed, I don't know, 25 employees, it's really hard to take care of your staff. At that point, it's also Way easier to make smaller numbers work. <laughs> um, you know, we're we're 40 seats, so it's much easier for me to budget and plan and forecast based on 40 seats rather than 120, 150. It also makes us nimble. I don't have to carry a big inventory, so it's very easy to change the menu as frequently as we do. But I and I love this space too. It's really convenient being across the street from Blooming Foods. You know, I lived in Bloomington before I moved to New Orleans. I lived mostly on the west side, and I still live over there. So it's like a 10 minute walk to get to work every day. And you know, we're close to downtown without being downtown, which is nice because it forces people to kind of seek us out a little bit more. You know, if we were on the square and people kind of stumbled in, we probably have a lot more difficulties with just trying to convince people about what we're doing and whether or not it was worthwhile. Here people sort of like hear about us from friends or something like that and kind of know what they're getting into. So it makes our life easier as, as far as like greeting and walking guests through the menu and things like that.
0: Speaking of menu items, it was time to sample the gougeres. The pastries were out of the oven, and after resting for 15 minutes, they were filled with the chicken liver parfait by cutting a hole in the bottom and inserting the tip of the pastry bag with the parfait inside. It was pretty straightforward, but the results seemed magical. The chef recommended taking a bite of an unfilled one to get that crunch, and then also reaching in to pull out some of the interior dough. That way you fully experience both textures of the gougeres. Toby tried that method. That was a good, a good tip. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to, sometimes when you eat a, like this kind of like cheesy pastry thing, it doesn't it taste like cheese at all, but it, it really does. Toby, himself a previous owner and chef of a local restaurant, The Owlery, was familiar with the Kentucky cheesemaker Kenny's Farmhouse where the Gruyere came from.
1: We use it like a, one of one dish that I didn't mention actually that's been on our menu since day one is our cheese fries. So they're hand cut uh, russet potatoes that we blanch, then fry to order, cover with the Kenny's Gruyere, throw them under a salamander to melt the cheese, and then serve that with a little bit of garlic aioli and uh miso banyacata. So like not it's like a broken banyacata like the classic Italian Crudité dip, and we use miso instead of anchovy, so it's uh, so, so we we use it a lot on savory dishes for vegans and vegetarians too.
0: Okay, I need to talk for a minute about what I just ate. <laughs> the pastry is fluffy and light, and yet it has the crunch on the outside, and the flavor is really sharp. It just has that tang. It's so good, and the the filling the Parfait? Is that what it is? I keep wanting to say pate, but it's parfait. So it also is very light and smooth. It is somewhat mousse-like, but it's not that airy. Yeah. But it's very smooth, and the flavors are incredible. I mean, so much richness with the chicken liver and something. It's an, it's an unusual flavor because I just don't eat that
1: Yeah.
0: often, <laughs> if ever. And then the herbs that steaming really did work to bring out all of that just kind of savory, herby of the thyme and the marjoram and the the shallots.
1: Well, yeah, I think thyme is, is an amazing herb, an amazing ingredient, and it's so often abused. Like it takes, it doesn't take much to kill it or to make it, to extract bitter flavors or woody flavors. And I think if you get that like sort of ethereal, savory uh, almost like like a savory mint, a heavy mint almost, and almost like a light rosemary flavor from it. It's delicate and it needs to be treated delicately. Raw, it's it's a little bit much on, it, on its own, but like a, a quick blanch, a quick steam is great. I don't like it as much for stocks and things like that. I feel like it loses a lot with that long process, but I'll typically throw it in as soon as I kill the heat on a stock before I strain, so it doesn't extract as much woodiness, but just that bright pop of it's, it's like a savory mint kind of vibe to it.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure.
0: We've been speaking with Nick Dietrich of Small Favors. That's all we have time for today. Hopefully, we can share our discussion of wine-based cocktails in a future episode of Earth Eats. You can find links for some of the ingredients mentioned in the show and for small favors on our website, eartheats.org. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.
1: is produced and edited by Kate Young with help from Ayoban Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Whaley,
0: reporters at Harvest Public Media, and me, Daniela Richardson. Special thanks this week to Nick Dietrich and everyone at Small Favors. Our theme music is
1: composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from artists at Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is John Bailey.